Look alive, sunshine. The question is not when you're gonna stop, but who is gonna stop you. The electric centaur, the democrat, the revolution will not be televised. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the Grindhouse Podcast. This week, we were meant to have a special guest, medieval historian Christopher Nedick, join us as we reviewed Roman Polanski's The Ninth Gate. But unfortunately, this time it wasn't Skynet. This time it was Mother Nature. And there is a hurricane hitting South Texas where Christopher lives. So um, the power's out and the Internet's down. So um, we hope that Christopher and his family are being safe during this time. We get and, we'll ha- and don't worry, we'll have him back another day to talk about another occultic movie. I think there's uh, plenty to choose from. But uh, more importantly right now, Christopher, be safe with your family. And hopefully this hurricane passes by with minimal damage. If you're following our social media accounts, you'll notice that this week on the Grindhouse podcast Instagram, we have launched a brand new tournament. You know, in the past, we've done uh, the greatest horror movie of all time, and this spring, we did the greatest action movie of all time. You know, I thought, you know, we're only a few weeks away from Halloween, and I know that because of COVID, that a lot of people are feeling like Halloween is canceled. You know, certainly, Universal Studios' Halloween nights has been canceled, and the likeliness that we'll all be in parties dressed up as sexy carrots and you know, various variations of the Joker is probably slim to none, hopefully. And if you are, wear a mask and socially distance. So I know that a little bit of the season's luster has been dampened. And because we did a tournament this time around last year, and I think it's just appropriate for us to, to sort of do some kind of countdown to my favorite time of the year, I thought, let's do a tournament this year that not only... Um, gives us a reason to be excited about the countdown to Halloween, but that people can really get behind. People people tend to like, you know. We did the horror movie last year, so what can I do that was a little bit different? And so this year it will be to see which movie reigns supreme amongst all the witch movies out there. Witchcraft is something that has become quite popular uh, amongst the alt culture. You know, the, you see more and more people turning away from mainstream religions and practicing paganism and witchcraft and Thelema and all kinds of sort of different older faiths and, and spiritual practices. And I and I know that's one of those things that people really connect with as, you know, reality can be somewhat um, frustrating and, and filled with strife. Now, the movies that I picked for this tournament are kind of very, and I know that there's been a little bit of blowback from them, and that's understandable because, again, this is just one of those genres of movies that people feel passionate about. And and before I go forward and announce the films that will be participating in this tournament and some of the rules, I was asked, what about the Blair Witch Project? How can you have a witch tournament without the Blair Witch Project? And the answer is very simple, because it sucks. I don't think it's a good movie. At best, it was a great marketing ploy that worked in like the year 2000, whenever that movie came out. But as far as like standing up to some of the other movies that did make it into this contest, I just don't think it lights a candle to it. Not even a black one. So no Blair Witch Project. I'm sorry. I'm sure there's someone else who will do a tournament and include them. And that's totally cool. It's all subjective. But this tournament will not have that. This tournament, which, by the way, is sponsored by Slasher, is going to have only the best of the best witch movies competing to see who can reign supreme. Now, the, the way this will work will be simple. 
There are 16 movies, each divided into two eight-movie brackets. In the first round, we'll pit two movies against each other, single elimination, alternating between A bracket and B bracket until we get into our next round. And it's audience choice. So this tournament has been sponsored by our friends over at the Slasher app. And we've talked, we've had Damon on that podcast before. I talk about the Slasher app. If you guys love horror, the Slasher app is for you. It is the only social media app dedicated entirely to people who love horror. All the conventions that you're missing, all the cool Halloween parties that you're not a part of, you can you can have some semblance of that when you join and when you participate in the Slasher app. So I'm super stoked to be partnering with them on this. I think it's really cool of them, and I think it's going to give you guys an opportunity to really weigh in. So the way it will work is, on Mondays, there will be two movies competing against each other. The Slasher app, on their Instagram, at the Slasher app, will post said two movies, and it's simple. In the comment section, tell us which movie is better. Which is the better which movie? Which is the better movie in general? Which movie you just personally like more? Tell us why one sucks and why you love the other. We'll tally up all those votes. And then the second way you can vote at our Instagram, at Grindhouse Podcast, I will put those two movies in a poll every day of the week, Monday through Friday, for you to vote on. We'll tally both of those up between the Slash Wrap and the Grindhouse Podcast Instagram. And then we'll announce the winner right back here on Mondays. So tune in every Monday. Subscribe if you haven't already on Spotify and iTunes and if you're a mumble rapper, SoundCloud, all that good stuff. And so that you can track along with us to see which movie is going to be crowned the most supreme witch movie of all time. Now let's get on to the ninth gate. A 1999 thriller by Roman Polanski starring Johnny Depp. And this is during Johnny Depp's sort of a box office poison period where he was doing all these really great films that just for one reason or another were not big hits in the box office. This is pre-Jack Sparrow Johnny Depp, right? Where he had a, a sizable fan following, but he certainly was not the, the big box office draw that he was in sort of the 2000s up until, you know, the last few years when he was slandered. This was when Johnny Depp was doing such great movies like From Hell and Dead Man and Ed Wood and, of course, Sleepy Hollow and also The Ninth Gate. And for one reason or another, just they never were connecting broader with audience. But this movie in particular has always been one of my favorites and partially because it's a little bit of a throwback. I mean, certainly as it's been produced and directed by Roman Polanski, it's a throwback to some of these older films like Rosemary's Baby and those sort of slow burn occultist thrillers that were very popular in the 70s and i felt like it used the kind of symbolism that you see more in current movies like robert eggers movies for example or ari aster's movies movies horror movies that really make you think the problem with this movie is that of course it came in the year 2000 uh, 1999 rather when movies that were really popular at the time were like the matrix you know big spectacles this is this is really when hollywood's obsession with cgi skyrocketed movies like this and uh dark i'm um, sorry uh, dark city which i've talked about before kind of got lost in the shuffle you know they were too slow for american audiences maybe but this film is so good it's one of to me personally it is one of johnny depp's if not johnny depp's best performance in a movie ever 
and uh, or at least side A to his side B, which I would say is Jack Sparrow, and partially because he plays it so straight. It's it's a movie where he simply plays an average guy. There's no there's none of that characteristic sort of you know Pepe Le Pew meets Keith Richards performances that we got used to when when Captain Jack Sparrow and Matt Hatter and those kind of films came out. No, this was really a subdued straight man Johnny Depp in which he plays Dean Corso, a something of a, a book appraiser, a book detective who's charged by Frank Langula's Boris Balkin to authenticate which of the three remaining copies of this mystical book, The Nine Gates of the Kingdoms of Shadow, is in fact the real one. This is a book that is reputed to be able to raise the devil himself. And it's Johnny Depp's, Dean Corso's job to figure out which book can do just that. They're reputed to conjure up the Prince of Darkness in person. You don't say. Now, one of my favorite things in films, and, and this film does it in spades, is films that every little detail is important. It's symbolic of something. One of the one of the things that I like that filmmakers will do from time to time is even in the names of the characters. Like, if, for example, if you watch uh, Inception, Cobb's name, I believe, is uh, Latin or something to mean dreams, right? Which makes sense given the context of the movie. This film is based on a book called Club de Moss, in which the lead character's name is Lucas Corso. Now, what's important to note about that is that the original name, Lucas Corso, Lucas, another version of it is Luca, which has often been associated with Lucifer or the light. And Corso, again, is a derivative of course or path. So his original name in the book actually means the path to Lucifer or conversely, the path to the light. Now, in this movie, his name is changed to Dean, and I don't know if that was done just because of, um, may, I don't know, maybe they felt Lucas was too European and they wanted to give him more of an American name, and Dean sounds American, like Jimmy Dean. Or maybe because Lucas was just way too close on the nose as far as symbolism and they wanted to throw you off. But even in choosing that name, Dean, the, the word Dean is derived from the idea of uh, a monk, a monastery, um, a, a religious follower or, or leader. So from that perspective, you could see that he is, in fact, taking a course towards on the spiritual journey, which is a little toned down from what the way the book did. But conversely, I feel like the movie kind of stayed on topic. The book sort of has this um, secondary story about a, an old copy of The Three Musketeers written by Alexander Dumas, which hence the name Club Dumas. This movie really kind of sticks pretty straightforward as far as being about the Book of Shadows. And specifically, that the Book of Shadows actually holds power to summon the devil. But as often as is often the case with religious uh, books and literature, oftentimes the results are not exactly what you think or want them to be. And it's raining outside, which is totally appropriate. So I hope that's being picked up on mic. So you can go online and you can look at videos, and lots of people have already talked about this, but it's pretty apparent to me that Johnny Depp's character, Dean Corso, is in fact Lucifer in the film. You know, along as this movie goes on, you start to see him face, um, within the book, within the book, The Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows, there are these inscriptions. And each inscription is very obviously sort of at least influenced by the images of the Tarot. 
and they're meant to tell a story about this spiritual path to the devil. And as his investigation continues, Dean Corso realizes that of in these three books, each having nine nine uh, illustrations, that three of those illustrations in each book are not signed by the author Aristide Torchy, but rather LCF Lucifer. And when combined, when you take the three illustrations that have that are signed LCF and you combine them together, they actually form the nine illustrations written purportedly by the devil himself. Therefore, the key to the kingdom of shadows is held not in one book, but in three books. What I love about this is that it's very apparent to me that Dean Corso, Johnny Depp's character, is in fact Lucifer. And that this is a pat this whole story is is a sort of a, a resurrection story of sorts. It's almost as if you can imagine this being an Antichrist film. Whereas in the Bible it purports that Jesus is God and he came down to live amongst man as a man, and then eventually he ascends to being back to being a divine creature, right? God returns to God or whatever you, whatever it may be. Dean Corso or Luca Corso he is, in a sense, the devil living as man. And this path that he takes as he starts to uncover the secrets of the nine gates is a path towards his own resurrection to being the devil or maybe the Antichrist, for example. And there's, you know, beyond just his name and what the naming means, there's other little symbolisms that come along the way. For example, Boris Balkin, right? The, the guy that he that employs him sets him on this journey. Balkin uh, is is a, the name of a mountain range, and Frank Langella's you know physical stature, especially in comparison to Johnny Depp's, is that of sort of a mountainous man. And much like mountains, he is a an obstacle that Dean must overcome. Even though he's bankrolling him in this sort of investigation on these books. Ultimately, it is Balkan that he must overcome to achieve his higher self, his his devil self. You know, for him to become that being of light that he is, you know, trapped as he's trapped in uh, the body of a man. At the very beginning of the movie, there's a really op- the, before even the opening credits open up. The original owner of the book that Balkan comes to own, which is called uh, the Telfer book, right, named after its original owner Andrew Telfer. He's portrayed as an old man in a room, mostly in red, with red slippers, a red robe. And he gets up on a chair, a little stool, and he hangs himself. Cue the credits. What's great about this scene and what's really, what really starts you off and to look for all the different symbols within the movie is his slippers. We see a close-up of his feet as he's about to hang himself. And the slippers have monograms, which is that of M.M., which is weird because his name is Andrew Telfer. So why is his initials M.M.? Well, I did a little research and I watched a few videos online. And another interesting aspect that might clue us into the M.M. monogram is that he's, his left shoe falls off when he hangs himself. Now, that might just be an obvious reference to the left path. You know, those who are familiar with the occultism, the left path is meant to be the the dark path or the path of Lucifer or dark magic, black magic, things of that nature, especially within Hollywood films, which always kind of ramp it up and, and hokey it up a little bit. But within the Masonic rituals, 
there is an initiation ritual called the um, the Entered Apprentice, in which the initiated actually has his left pant leg rolled up before they proceed with the initiation. And because this scene initiates us on this path, as well as it does our main character, Dean, there may be some symbolism to that, that at least some of the imagery was pulled from Masonic ritual. So MM might stand for Master Mason. The other interesting thing about names in this movie is that Andrew Telfer's initials are A-T. And as I mentioned earlier, the book, The Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows, was originally written by Aristide Torchy, who not only wrote this book in collaboration with Lucifer himself, but was was hung, I believe he was hung for heresy, for having collaborated with the devil. So, which starts, which again is the origin of this book and in the origin of our story, this movie that we're watching, another AT is hung, which begins us on our journey through the nine gates. It's also worth noting that Andrew Tolfer not only dies in a similar way to Torchy, but that he is hung by a... Um, a light fixture, which is a theme that's going to come up over and over and over again, because, of course, Lucifer means light bearer. And so it's interesting that it is, in fact, the light that kills Andrew Topher. There's another scene later on where his wife, Liana's part of this, uh, the order of the silver serpent, a sort of a, a cultist group that meets to have orgies and, um, and uh, you know, read from the book of shadows and indulge in in compulsions of the flesh very evidently based on at least people's perceptions of you know real life orders like the oto or maybe uh um anton levanian satanism and there's a moment where someone comments that if tolfer had known what liana tolfer was up to he'd have killed himself so Symbolically, he, as that came to light, perhaps, he then dies by the very light. He dies by the knowledge. Once he figured out what this book actually meant and what it actually led to, it actually leads to his downfall. And thus, our journey begins. To travel in silence by a long and circuitous route, to brave the arrows of misfortune and fear neither noose nor fire, to play the greatest of all games and win for going no expense, is to mock the vicissitudes of fate and gain at last the key that will unlock the ninth gate. We follow Johnny Depp and he finds himself this, this sort of strange companion, this woman who's known only as Green Eyes. She's a, a French lady who's following him around, purports herself to be a student, and always seems to not only be there when he needs her the most, but also seems to know stuff that there's no reason she would know maybe knows things even before he knows things she in fact acts as something of a guide for him and one way to look at this is that she is in some ways his holy guardian angel albeit a darker one than maybe traditionally we think about when we think of guardian angels but she is there to converse with him to lead him down the path to slip through the veil to pass through the veil to pass through the abyss or in this instance the ninth gate now, if any of this sounds familiar, if you're at all familiar with uh, Aleister Crowley or Thelema or, um, you know, the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, 
a lot of times when Hollywood makes movies about the occult, they like to cherry pick from a lot of different things and sort of it's a smorgasbord of different esoteric beliefs and rituals to create an eerie tale. And it almost always centers around the devil, whether or not, you know, the actual orders do. And I think there's no exception here. I think that Polanski pulled a lot from the Golden Dawn and, and from Crowley and from Tarot and and from numerology as well, just to in order to sort of cultivate this world and surrounding the story of Ascension. Dean Corso's Ascension from being a man to being Lucifer himself. And we see that as he's looking through illustrations, many of these things happen to him. His friend, uh, another bookseller, is who's storing one of his books for him, is found ha- hung up like the hangman. The hangman is a direct image from the trail. Most of the other illustrations are sort of at least influenced by the style, but the hangman actually appears. Now in Tarot, the hangman represents sacrifice. You know, it is a man hung up with one one leg kind of folded in, but in the Tarot, there's a halo around the hangman, which sort of would indicate that he is self-sacrificing. You know, if you want to be a, a master guitarist or a filmmaker, you dedicate yourself to your craft, and maybe you spend less time on Facebook arguing with people who just decided to get into politics five minutes ago, or Twitter arguing about what's vegan or not vegan, and you put all that stuff aside, and you kind of focus at the craft, your, what your will is, right, what your, what your purpose is. And this kind of plays true in this film as well, because it is the first time that Dean starts to sacrifice his moral some. Earlier, when he first talks to Balkan, Balkan says to Corso, you, you don't seem like a man who's done things illegal before, to which Johnny Depp replies, not that illegal. And yet, just a couple of scenes down the line, he's bypassing his dead friend, taking the book and running without, you know, calling that police or really checking even if he's alive. I mean, he looks at him, but he's already started to become seduced by what this book holds and also the money that he's being paid. So this is the first moral sacrifice, which is necessary for him. And you'll see it increase as the movie progresses to where he becomes more and more steeped in wrath and violence. Another scene in which he sort of sacrifices his morals is when he's attacked by this um, um, one of Liana's cohorts, uh, a member of the the Silver Serpent Society who's been tracking him along these ways, sort of an African-American man with a mustache and platinum blonde hair. There's this moment where they start to actually get into a physical altercation and you start to see him get angrier and angrier and try to attack him. First, he's sort of defenseless and his green-eyed, you know, holy guardian angel sort of steps in and takes care of him, makes sure he's protected. But as the movie progresses and as he starts to further come in contact with him you can see the anger build and build and build later on he gets his hand on him again and he actually beats him to his to he's covered in, his, in the the guy's blood all over him and green eyes turns to him and says i didn't know you had that in you and at the top of the movie he didn't but over the sacrifices and the paths down the kingdom the through the nine gates he is starting to give in to that uh, primal version of himself you know, no longer is he just a guy who's greed. I mean, or maybe he already had greed, but he's really slipping into that. He's really slipping into giving in to sin and giving in to, you know, all the things that are always associated with the devil, right? Anger and greed and lust. And we'll get to lust in a moment because that plays a part as well. 
the order of the silver serpent. Today, they've degenerated into a social club for bored millionaires and celebrities who use its meetings as an excuse to indulge their jaded sexual appetites. Hmm. I myself belong to the order. With each step that brings Corso closer to the truth, you find that he's becoming more and more obsessed, not only about doing his job or the money associated with it, but what the what magic this book holds. You know, um, as he meets the different owners of the other copies, it's pretty evident to him that this book means more than just being an old, rare, prized possession, you know, this priceless piece of art that was maintained through the ages but in fact holds a certain power over everyone whether it be because of its mastery and beauty and the craftsmanship or those who actually believe that it does it is in fact the work of the devil himself there's a a strange passion that is focused on on this book within the different owners and former owners of it and you start to see Corso become more and more seduced by its power or more specifically the truth of it and that's to me the thing that that uh, Balkan gets so incorrect, and, and and frankly, that most horror movies, and also maybe most people about who sort of listen to or have formed an idea about the devil and Satan, based on sort of a you know you know their religious upbringing or certainly in Hollywood movies, is that it's all about power, that it's all about um, you know being able to be immortal, but in fact. Lucifer, once again, means light bringer. And many people believe that the, the mythology of Lucifer is based on Prometheus, who was also a light bringer. You know, the Greek god who brought fire down from, from Olympus to humans on Earth. So in, in an older time, this sort of archetype of Lucifer or Prometheus was merely someone who dared to give knowledge to mortals. And it's very evident that Corso, who himself is a avid book, uh, he's a book detective at least, I mean, maybe an avid reader himself, he's certainly a learned man. It's the truth that drives him forward. It's the knowledge that drives him forward. Now, maybe you can make may even make the argument that it's the forbidden knowledge, right? That this, that this um, nine gates of the kingdom of shadows is in fact his apple and he is Eve, right? Or he's Adam. But it's not power that drives him in the same way that it does Balkan. And when we get to the end of the film, this becomes really evident. Balkan, who has since stolen all the inscriptions that were marked by LCF, does some sort of satanic ritual in, in which he lights this castle on fire. And um, you know he, he aims to summon the devil himself. But the devil doesn't appear. Or at least, not that he thinks. Who appears is Corso. And Corso says, I am the only aberration that's going to appear before you. Now, from you know a casual viewing of it, and certainly Balkan's view of it, he just doesn't look like it worked. But in fact, it did work. And then Balkan himself ends up being something of a human sacrifice in order to further the resurrection of Lucifer in the guise of Corso. Lucifer did show up, just not in the way he thought. Because uh, hubris is often comes before the fall, Balkan sets himself on fire, believing him immortal, believing that the that the nine kingdoms, uh, the nine gates of the kingdom of shadows, these inscriptions, the power that they are meant to grant is some sort of a human immortality, like a like a Superman or something of that nature. When in fact, what they actually symbolize is, is the resurrection of Lucifer in the form of Corso. And so as he lights himself on fire, 
he finds himself just a mere mortal who's burning to death. This is when Corso takes his turn towards the dark side, if you will, in which he sees a burning Balkan and puts a bullet inside of him. You could look at that both as murdering him unnecessarily, and you could look at that both as sympathy and mercy. And it's really up to your perspective. You know, it's kind of hard to tell from Depp's performances. I always sort of took it as he was a mercy killing, but then there's also a little part of me that thinks that, that there was some enjoyment in the murder as well. That Corso didn't just shoot Balkan because he wanted to put him out of his misery, but and he kind of enjoyed putting him down. And there was a change in a power, power dynamic. You know, Balkan is on the floor, on his knees, burning. And Corso, is, who's always been a slight man in comparison, is now the one who stands over top of him, looking down with the power to end his suffering or let it continue. And he makes a choice. And whether or not that choice might have been the more, more merciful one, it certainly was him taking advantage of the power dynamic that had shifted in his favor. Immediately leaving that scene in which you see this little castle on fire, inflamed, echoing a, another inscription in which a lady sits on a beast, rides the beast, which is drawn straight from Revelation. Again, another Hollywood film sort of picking and choosing between various occultic texts. We talked about lust earlier, and uh, you know, there's an earlier scene where Johnny Depp sleeps with Diana Telfer, who is trying to seduce him to get the book back. But that's more him being in the moment, you know. It's, just, it's very, it's very of this human plane. This sex scene with green eyes obviously takes a much darker turn. And if ever there was doubt that Corso is in fact Lucifer, if we look at the inscription and we take that these inscriptions are meant to to be symbolic of the journey that Corso is taking. In the inscription, the lady is sitting on a, on a dragon or the beast. She's riding the beast. And in the sex scene, she's on top and she's riding Johnny Depp, which would then indicate that he, in fact, is the beast. There's another scene where he's got the blood of him. As I aforementioned, he beats the hell out of the, uh, the guy with the, the platinum hair. And she kind of marks him with blood. Three lines. Now... You might it might look similar to you. You know, it might might look like uh, something you've seen before, and that might be something like uh, the Monster Energy drink. You know, Monster Energy drink has three claw marks down to form the M, right? But in in Kabbalic uh, symbolism, each of those lines is meant to correlate with the number six, and so the three lines represent six six six. So not only is it does it mark six six six. But because it is a literal marking of blood, it is the mark of the beast. And much like in Revelation, the mark of the beast happens on the forehead. So Corso is anointed by his holy and guardian angel, his dark holy, holy guardian angel, with the mark of the beast. Further signifying that it is his destiny to leave this mortal plane to cross the abyss and become Lucifer once again. Now what happens after that? I guess it's up to interpretation. Is it simply a matter of him getting gaining all the knowledge of his divine self? Or does it mean the end times, hell on earth? Does it mean the dawning of a new aeon? You know, because it feels like he, um, Polanski pulled from a lot of different texts, and because it's a horror film, you know, it leaves it up to your interpretation. But it's very evident that... Dean Corso's path is not simply to conjure the devil to like a, like a genie, you know, and make three wishes, but in fact to cross beyond what he knows in this mortal plane, cross that ninth gate, cross that abyss, 
and to ascend into a more divine self. And I don't think that this film actually makes much of a moral um, assumption on that either. In fact, you could argue that people who misinterpret these esoteric texts are the ones who are the most evil, right? Liana Telfer and Boris Bolkin. It's, in fact, Johnny Depp and the green-eyed woman who are only on a quest for truth that are the ones that are always sort of positioned as being the righteous ones. You know, they're simply chasing knowledge, not some sort of abuse for things that don't really matter. Things are bound to this world. The man who wrote this book is so in alliance with the devil and went to the stake for it. Even hell has its heroes, senor. <laughs> now, I could spend days going on to all the various different little symbols that you see throughout it. The little, you know, There's a whole video on YouTube where they talk about the numerology and how that plays a part in it. Different names having different um, numerical correspondences that would indicate further that Corso is in fact Lucifer. But there's one really obvious one. The castle, the little chateau that um, Boris Bolkin does his final ritual in, it's seen in a postcard. And there's a sun flare uh, of a setting sun that's shining out from behind one of the uh, turrets of the castle. And in it, there are five rays poking out from behind that which would indicate the five points of the pentagram. This is one of those things that I always kind of drives me nuts, you know, like um, in the same way that when I was talking to Christine Phelan last week about the witch, it's one of those images that um, Hollywood likes to grab and it's, you know, it stands for the devil, right? It stands for evil. And, you know, in this instance, it's the inverted pentagram. Anyone who's a fan of metal has seen that a billion times. The reality of it is in most esoteric cultures, the pentagram simply means uh, the four elements and spirituality. And the inverted pentagram really only refers to a, um, an imbalance or maybe not even an imbalance, but a, a, um, a perspective in which the things of the earth are outweighing the things of the divine. So in that way, it's not entirely wrong. If you, in, in, at least in terms of the way that most of the people, most of our characters are side characters, Boris Bolkin and Deanna Telfer, they are putting things of the flesh, things of this world above the divine knowledge. But, you know, again, it, it, it perpetuates this idea that the pentagram is somehow some kind of evil symbol. And it, it never really has been. You know, overall, I love this kind of stuff. I love nerding out about the different symbolic meanings of names and images. And, you know, where, you know, you could you could spend all your day picking out one symbolic imagery and reading about what that means and, and how it's connected and all those kind of things. And I love doing all that, but the movie just works, you know, it's just a fun thriller. It's, it's, it's a horror movie of sorts, I guess, you know, it's, it's a movie that is a um, sort of comes from an, an era where, where it was trying to say something more than it was just trying to pile up a body count. And, um, I, I definitely feel like it's it's a movie that has stood up. This I mean, I've watched that movie a million times, and I feel that because its story is so well plotted out and told and the acting is really great, um, outside of maybe one Johnny Depp yell when he's bitten by Liana Telfer, which was a, a sort of early calling to what would eventually become Jack Sparrow, this movie definitely holds up. It's a nice plotted thriller that uses a lot of that put a lot of thought behind the the imagery behind it and has a message and has a twist that doesn't hit you over the nose it's not like the sixth sense it's not a oh gotcha moment it's one of those things that you could watch the movie and and just think that Johnny Depp's character Corso is just a guy who goes to visit the devil at the end or 
you can look a little deeper into it and you can realize that maybe he was the devil the whole time. And I love that those kind of movies more, right? The M. Night Shyamalan sort of twists got you at the end movies are fine once or twice. But these kind of movies make you... I, I mean, every time I watch it, I learn something new about it. And that's really the hallmark of a really strong art, in my opinion. So we like to do ratings here. This one gets five tusks for me, five out of five tusk. It's excellent. Uh, I, I wish that it would have done better or that it at least finds a home after the fact. You know, if you're looking for some a dark movie that you can watch again to kick off this countdown to Halloween, which I know it's only uh, July, but, you know, we're before you know it, August will be over and we'll be head on into autumn. So might as well get a jump on it now. What else do we have to do? There's a lot more horrors in the world that we could uh, step away from a little bit and, and have a little bit of fun in the world of cinema and the occult. So with that, and because it's just me today, and I'm sure you guys are tired of hearing me ramble on about how much I love The Ninth Gate, let's go ahead and uh, ask a, get a few of your audience questions in. Questions from Macarette. Zeus of Blackheart Coffee asks, what's with Green Eye's mismatched socks in The Ninth Gate? Well, the deal is she is a holy guardian angel, and doesn't care about what kind of socks she has. I think it's pretty evident that her vessel in this movie is is just that. It's just meant to be something that is um, to grant her the ability to walk among us, so to speak. You know, there's only really a couple moments when she displays her supernatural aspect. One in which she floats down the stairs to aid Johnny Depp when the uh, I no, it's not really an albino, the blonde haired, the platinum blonde haired guy is beating him up and then at the end when she rides the beast right and you start to see her face kind of morph a little bit and her eyes glow beyond that her job is to stay conspicuous and so if you're taking the position of something of a student what better way to be a student than to look like someone who doesn't put a lot of care into your attire right really blends in maybe a little quirky the other way to look at it is that as she is a divine creature she probably doesn't totally have a grasp about how fashion works you know she has a very a very um surface level understanding of humanity and maybe just doesn't understand that humans typically don't wear mismatching socks and um it could also just be that um she just well, hadn't done laundry that day because you know being a guardian angel is busy work and sometimes you get home after you know taking care of lucifer and keeping weird platinum blonde hair guys away from attacking him all day is exhausting and you still want to do laundry when you get home so that's i'm gonna go with that i'm saying her as a as a satanic guardian angel was just tired of protecting the devil all day and just felt didn't feel like doing laundry and then you know just grabbed the first two socks out of her guardian angel sock drawer and slung them on marissa mirabelle film critic for fangoria and birth movies and death asks a three-part question Question one, The Ninth Gate is based on a novel, but is it based on any real legends that are reputed to summon the devil? Question two, why have other similar films about conjuring the devil done well whilst The Ninth Gate was received poorly despite Polanski and Depp being on board? Question three, what parallels exist between Dante's Inferno and The Ninth Gate? So yeah, so the the, the movie, as I alluded to earlier, is based on the novel The Club Dumas, and it's you know, as most movie adaptations go, it's fairly loosely based on that. There's some subplots in the novel that don't make their way to the movie, I think, for the better. 
Um, but as far as whether or not it was based on anything, like if, if both the book and the movie are based on any kind of a real book of shadows of sorts, I did find something that was called um, the Grand Grimoire. It's a black magic grimoire. Different editions date to this book to 1521, 1522, or 1421. But, uh, it, you know, most likely it was actually written in the early 19th century. This book was purportedly a book that was designed to help you raise the devil, right? Much like the fictional Ninth Gate, Nine Gates of the Kingdom of Shadows is done, is meant to do in this movie. Now, the uh, the Black Grimoire is, or the Grand Grimoire rather, is is most likely derived from the Key of Solomon or the and the Lesser Key of Solomon. Both of those books are, you know, often studied and and um, revered within um, Hermeticism and uh, certainly Aleister Crowley, which, as we've mentioned, has a huge influence on this film. You know, in the Lesser Key of Solomon and the Abrahamic rituals uh, that, say, for example, Crowley did, the objective was to raise the 12 kings of hell and have them uh, bend, basically bend the knee to you, right? You're supposed to take control over them. Uh, another, in, in Crowley, Thelema, and in um, Hermeticism, oftentimes... It's thought of that these books, the King of Solomon or the Lesser King of Solomon, were meant to connect you and have you invoke the Goetia, which were sort of a, uh, mostly thought of as demons, right, to some. Just like in, in uh, the Golden Dawn, you would often invoke you know, archangels and angels to do your will. The Goetia is you are invoking demons, essentially, to do your will. And one school of thought is that these all represent different parts of ourselves, Right. If archangels and angels are designed to be parts of our higher consciousness or spiritual consciousness, then the Goetia, these demons, are designed to be part of our id, our most primal self, our most primal programming. You know, a lot of this ancient esoteric work was sort of the precursor of what we, or at least a portion of what we call psychoanalysis now. And so summoning the devil, summoning the demons was, from one perspective, summoning the the darkest parts of yourself and bending them to your will so that you have mastery over them, not the other way around. So for example, if you have, um, uh, let's say lust, for example, is a demon that is plaguing you and it's causing you to behave in a way that is detrimental to you finding your true will, you do these rituals and you invoke it and you then have it work for you. So maybe instead of having um, compulsions, you then use it to do sex magic to you know invoke your manifestations, things of that nature. There's some people who has also thought that it's not strictly just parts of our subconscious and higher consciousness, but that they are in fact fabrics of the universe that have their own intelligences. Um, but but traditionally. You know, outside of, of basic, um, you know, Hollywood lore and, and stuff that you hear, like in sermons, for the most part, you know, it's not truly summoning the devil to make wishes. And the Grand Grimoire, this book mentions three higher demons. You know, these demons are, are very similar, like I mentioned earlier, to the Grimorian Verum. Um, you know, it's Lucifer as the emperor, it's Beelzebub as the, po- as the prince, and is Astaroth as the Grand Duke. And other demons that are meant to be invoked through this book. So, um, I definitely, I definitely would imagine that this was this was uh, 
pretty influenced by that and and certainly from the book's perspective and then of course i think the movie drew, drew even more from those inspirations so if you're looking to summon the devil or if you're looking to master the demons within your Croatian tree, maybe check out the Grand Grimoire and see what demons you can rise yourself. I, I certainly recommend not doing it um, without a very serious intent because sometimes you let things in that you don't want to let in and then they run amok. So beware. Second part of your question is, why have other similar films been revered? So... To the second part of your question, and I kind of alluded to this earlier as to why other films kind of in the same genre have been more highly regarded and revered than than The Ninth Gate. I mean, look, from my personal perspective, I just think it came out in the wrong time. I just think that it came out in a time when we're, you know, as far as horror movies were concerned, we're used to movies like um, Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer. And we're about to segue into movies like uh, Hostel and Human Centipede. And, you know, as far as, you know, you've got The Matrix blowing away. I mean, look, some as much as I love this movie, some of the effects are a little cheesy. And they certainly look like a callback to, like, you know, the rear projection of, like, Psycho. So I just think it was, you know, if this movie had been made in 1975, I think it would have been amazing. And I think that if it had been made in 2010 or 2015 or 2020, I think people would have found it pretty amazing. But it just came at the wrong time when it was too much of a slow burn, too much of a throwback to a time that wasn't really in the zeitgeist as far as what horror meant. There's very there's not very much, you know, body count as far as that's concerned. There's no crazy effects. The the devil doesn't even really appear like in the traditional sense. He just it's more of a symbolic appearance. And so I just don't I think it was um you know, uh, to to quote Marty McFly, uh, you might not it might be too early for them now, but but their kids are going to love it. And to the third part of your question, as far as Dante's Inferno and the Ninth Gate, well, it's certainly it's certainly symbolic of a spiritual path, you know. Um, whereas Dante goes into hell and comes out the other side of it, I think um, it's uh, Corso's path is to go back to hell, to go back to that part of him that was um, not bound by the limitations of the material plane. And so from that perspective, there's there's certainly some parallels, you know, and again, I think part of this, this is a little, it's a little high concept for the time. Not that, you know, movies had to be dumb then, but it just this in the genre of horror, you know, I, I see people online often bemoan the, the term elevated horror, but this to me is an elevated horror. And, um, and you know, drawing from things, esoteric readings like the, the grand grimoire and Aleister Crowley and the the Golden Dawn and the Tarot like that's heady stuff that I just don't think people coming out of watching Scream 3 were necessarily going to connect with on the same level and and that's unfortunate but again the great thing about cinema and movies and um, pieces of art like like Dante's Inferno is that they exist evergreen always available for someone new to discover them and find the same amazement that as it was intended. So in that way, they're both classics and they're the parallels. X Danny Darko X asks, what are some of the things you're researching right now? Thank you, Danny. Um, man. So uh, if you've noticed for the last few episodes, we've been doing a lot of stuff about witchcraft and the occult because it's kind of been what I've been into lately. Um, you know, I've been reading a lot about Thelema, which was Aleister Crowley's um, r- religious or spiritual or ideology. Um, I've been watching a TV show called uh, Strange Angel, 
which is a based on loosely based on a real life story of Jack Parsons, who was um, a follower of the Lima and also a rocketeer in the early 40s. And I've been reading and following along the um, the spiritual ritual work as set forth in Damien Echo's High Magic and offshoots of that, and wherein you know your will, your true will, your true meaning of life is the main objective discovering what that is which is not to say that it's only ever one thing and one thing only but it is you know there's an within thelema for example and this is part of what i'm researching and studying lately the idea that you have to find your will like it's uh like you do a bunch of magic rituals and then you will find your will but you know your will defines us at least from the perspective of thelema we are always we're always driven by our will and so it's not a matter of just finding it. It's more like clarifying it so that you do that and you remove some of the things that distract you from that. It doesn't mean that it removes you from all suffering, but it certainly would mean that it would remove some of the unnecessary suffering as caused by being distracted from your, your true purpose. You know, leisure is fine, but leisure at the sake of being that, um, that great poet or that amazing singer or that uh, teacher or that filmmaker... That can that that will oftentimes lead to suffering and frustration and um, and bitterment. So a lot of that, a lot of thelema and high magic and um, ritual of that nature, things that um, you know aren't taught in mainstream religion. I'm a big I'm a big believer, and I've always kind of been, but this has really come to the forefront of my mind as I have gotten a little older, which is that spirituality is actually incredibly important. In society and when you remove spirituality and i'm not talking about religion or like being a christian or catholic or buddhist or muslim or anything you know jewish anything like that i mean it can be sure but but some kind of spiritual belief is very important to us because in the absence of that we tend to find ourselves joining um campaigns you know like uh, crusades for this thing or that thing and Certainly, if you look around the world, there are plenty of, of good campaigns to be a part of to some degree. But anytime you have a large group of people blindly belonging, b- believing one ideology, you, you tend to get a corruption at some point, often from within. And it, and it, it you know, plummets into absurdity like the, like the Hindenburg. So I think that without a, a very personal spiritual connection to something anything i think that people tend to be kind of aimless and then that's dangerous and i think we see that online and we see that uh in political offices and we see that in the media and to me it's not solely this but i i definitely think that it's some of that could be curbed if people had could find something to have some sort of faith some sort of belief some sort of um deeper connection to so that they can lead a life that suits their desires and suits their will. I've used that term a lot, but it's because it's very important to me, you know, choosing a life that is fulfilling because there may or may not be anything outside of it. So I spend a lot of my free time beyond doing the two podcasts and my, you know, working film work, um, researching that and studying that and putting that into practice because, um, you know, as you get older, you realize time is pretty fleeting. You know, as you uh, you unfortunately lose friends and family, you realize that it's it's pretty finite. And 
I I personally believe, and this is sort of a, uh, I can't remember the quote exactly, it's derived from an Alan Moore quote, but that magic is art. And I love art. I've always loved art. I've always loved culture. And I believe that having a connection to magic only deepens my connection to art and my ability to create art and my ability to understand art. And it has put me, you know, not everyone has thrived in quarantine, but for me, it's given me some much needed time off to put some time into that and to study it and to put it into practice into my life. And I can't stress enough how much focusing on ceremonial magic has uh, done for me as far as my maturity and my ability to handle, you know, handle problems and stresses and just generally interacting with humans in general, because you start to realize that every man and woman is a star. We're all connected. You know, Carl Sagan said that we're all made of star stuff and, when you start to realize that and you really start to um, internalize that, it's a lot harder to hate people around you, you know? It's a, it's a lot easier to realize that we're all kind of interconnected and some days you have your good days and some days you have your bad days, but um, you start putting more emphasis on that aspect of your life. And I personally feel like some kind of spiritual ritual is, is very useful in that regard. I think it finds it, it, you find the life is a lot is a lot easier and you also start to realize who doesn't really belong in your life and you know, they may be a star, but they don't have to be a star in your solar system. So that's kind of what I've been focusing on. And movies, man, studying, researching movies as always, you know, ever since we made the change in the podcast, like I've had to spend more time doing deeper research, even with this episode, you know, when I when I don't necessarily have someone to banter on with, it's it's kind of incumbent upon me to, to do some educating of this movie and not just watching and reacting. And that's fun because I just come out more rewarded you know more fulfilled from the from the art piece so uh if you guys have the the ability to do the same i recommend it you know a lot of us have time right now and use that time to do something productive for yourself that so that tomorrow you're just a little bit better than you were today and the next day you'll be just a little bit better than you were tomorrow anyways guys uh, i'm done waxing poetic about uh, you know spirituality and the occult and, and i can't stress enough how cool this movie is I definitely, if you haven't seen it, watch it. If you haven't seen it in a long time and you kind of vaguely remember watching, liking it, go back and watch it again. It's cool. It holds up. Some of those effects are cheesy, but otherwise it holds up, especially when you start to get dig deep into the symbolic aspect of it if, you're, if you want to go super nerdy like me. Thank you guys once again. Really, really appreciate it. Don't forget this Monday, Which Movie Will Reign Supreme Tournament, sponsored by Slasher, will be The Witch versus The Wretched. I'm going to go watch The Wretched. I just saw The Witch. You guys should watch both if you haven't already. Make sure to vote on the Slasher app this Monday in their post in the comments. And Monday through Friday, go to the Grindhouse Podcast Instagram. Like, subscribe, look at our stories, vote. It's up to you guys. We do this. I do this because I I love entertaining and having a community with you guys. Um, I get such positive feedback and you know, the work's hard and it's it's sometimes not always uh, timely depending on what else I've got going on in my life. But um, it's super cool and, I, and I'm thinking of new ways to open this up and, and do more stuff with it because I think that's my will. My will is to interact and understand art and to teach art and to learn from art. And I invite you guys to join me on that journey and be a part of it. Be a part of this community because it makes it all worth it for me. So thank you so, so much. Love talking with you guys every week. 
Make sure to vote. Make sure to comment. Make sure to like and subscribe. Make sure to tell me why I left the movie off that should be on the Switch tournament. Uh, I'm not going to change it, but let me know regardless. You know, hit me up. If you want to hit me up on Twitter, I'm there in spite of myself at Dave Oscuro or on the Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast. And until next time, folks, thank you so much. Adios. You're listening to the Grindhouse Podcast on the Book Detective Network. Please follow us on Instagram at Grindhouse Podcast and listen to us every Monday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and now on Spotify. 